Yeah, he passed away two years before I got my papers. So I was planning to go home, but um, he told my mom, if something happened to me and I died, tell your daughter just to stay in the U.S. and wait for her papers. This is my Auntie Gia speaking. She left San Fernando Pampanga of the Philippines to work in the U.S. as a caregiver, at first without papers. Her decision involved many large sacrifices, such as not being able to grieve the loss of her father with her family. When I ask her what it felt like to spend eight years in the U.S. waiting to get her green card, she tells me a story about moving from one apartment to another during that time. I remember um, moving my stuff from one apartment to the other using the cart of Safeway because <laughs> I don't have anybody to help me. I get the cart from Safeway and I put my stuff there and move it to another apartment. That was funny at the same time, you know, this is life in America. What can I do? People are busy. I cannot depend on anybody except myself, you know. Auntie Gia tells me that she misses everything about the Philippines. Her family, her friends, the months-long Christmas season there, and her favorite holiday sweet rice, Duman. But for Auntie Gia and her father, the sacrifices were worth it. To understand why, we need to understand some basics about Filipinos working overseas, a group so large they have their own acronym, OFWs, or Overseas Filipino Workers. Since I'm from the Bay Area, interviewing caregivers who live here, I'm going to use a Bay Area metaphor to help you understand the scale of this migration. I want you to imagine that one year in the Bay, all the people who live in San Francisco have left by April. By September, all the people in San Jose have left too. By October, all the people in my hometown, Vallejo. By December, Oakland and Berkeley too. If you haven't been tracking the math, that's approximately 2 million people, which is the number of people who leave the Philippines every year to work overseas. Every day, that's over 6,000 people leaving the Philippines. The question is, why? I'm Kevi, and in this first episode, we will break down the complex answer to this simple question. We will start in the community I grew up in, a community of Filipina migrant caregivers in the Bay Area. Before we get into a little more history, I want to introduce you to one of these women, my Auntie Lydia. My Auntie Lydia, who lived in the apartment next to mine when I was a child, is one of the many who left her children in the Philippines to work here in the U.S. Well, I came from Bohol, and I like Bohol because they said people there are friendly. I hope it is. It's true. I'll always remember being a little girl visiting her apartment, looking at the framed pictures of children on her walls who I'd never met, and learning that these were her children back home in the Philippines. I was like 40 years old when I left the Philippines. And like, it's at first, it's hard for me because I have five kids. And my youngest is like, 
she'll be going five years old, so it's, it's really, really hard for me. She also described her reason for making this decision. Yeah, I decided to come to America because, like, yeah, my, my ex-husband there had a job, but I think for five children, it's not enough for that, like, education. So that's why I really, I'm really eager to come here. When Auntie Lydia left the Philippines, her youngest daughter, named Monique, was five. Now Monique is 26. I had like grandchildren over there. When I left, they are all single. <laughs> and a little girl. But now I have grandchildren that I've got like uh, in the Philippines, I've got five grandchildren. She has never met or held any of her grandchildren. Many OFWs, like Auntie Lydia, can't return to the Philippines if they are undocumented in the U.S., as many overstayed travel visas and would not be able to re-enter the U.S. if they left. It's been 21 years since she went home. Of course, we had to sacrifice ourselves for our family. For Auntie Lydia, leaving the Philippines was not a choice. Millions like her feel it is their only option if they want to sustain their family and provide education for their kids. The migration of Filipino migrant workers like Auntie Lydia is not a new phenomenon. It really became an official government strategy and policy in the 1970s with the passing of a new labor code. As of the 21st of uh, this month, I signed Proclamation Number 1081, placing the entire Philippines under martial law. The voice you just heard is President Ferdinand Marcos Sr., who is most well known for declaring martial law in the Philippines in 1972 and helming an administration of corruption and human rights abuses. Two years later, he passed by executive order the Labor Code of 1974. Under this code, the government would oversee the exportation of Filipino labor to fulfill labor shortages around the world. It was the first time overseas work was institutionalized in the Philippines. Now, I could make a whole episode only about the economic situation of the Philippines under Marcos Sr., but what's most important is that Marcos passed the labor code because the Philippines was seriously in debt to international financial institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. The labor code of 1974 was originally meant as a temporary solution to this economic crisis and the mass joblessness and economic inequality that resulted. But Marcos also opened the Philippines up to unmitigated trade and participation in the global market, increasing foreign investments and ownership, and transforming the Philippines into an export-oriented economy. And what became the Philippines' biggest export? Many argue that it was, and continues to be, cheap labor. 
In the five decades since the labor code was passed, the economic landscape of the Philippines has changed dramatically. Nakapagtala ang Pilipinas ng pinakamataas na overseas Filipino worker OFW remittances sa kasaysayan noong 2022. In 2022, OFW sent back $36 billion to the Philippines, setting a record high and making up nearly 9% of the Philippines' total GDP. Clearly then, the mass migration of Filipinos affects the economic, cultural, and social landscape of the Philippines and the Filipino diaspora. In order to better understand how the U.S. benefits from this mass migration of Filipinos, I had a conversation with Professor Valerie Francisco Menchavez, a professor at SF State who focuses on the research of Filipina migrant caregiving communities in the U.S. And for some important context, the U.S. has a severe lack of a federal system providing long-term care for people over 65. Since the 90s, there has been a boom in for-profit, long-term residential care facilities, facilities that employ thousands of Filipino migrant workers. The second part of that, Kevi, is that the, the long-term care industry in the United States requires flexible, disposable, undocumented immigrant labor that's often gendered and racialized, right? to work in this industry. And when I say gendered and racialized, it's sort of, what I'm trying to say here is, like if you get mothers who are also undocumented and understand a little bit about the American racial order in the United States, and, and they, have, they have kids at home, they have kids here, employers in long-term care facilities bet on that obligation on that maternal obligation that whether or not we treat you fairly, whether or not we take your wages, you have mouths to feed. And so we're gonna make sure we capitalize on that opportunity um, and keep you working, right? As Professor Menchavez talks, I think again of my Auntie Lydia's words. Of course, we had to sacrifice ourselves for our family. I think about all the women I know who live by these words too, and how their care for their family has meant leaving behind their homeland and loved ones. Talking to Dr. Menchavez, I could understand that in our current world, countries like the US depend on countries like the Philippines in many ways, including to take care of our elderly here in America. Or to say it in another way, the U.S. and the Philippines together uphold a system of mass labor export that depends on the separation of Filipino families. Grassroots organizations like the Filipino Association of Workers and Immigrants' Rights, or PAWIS, work to promote the struggle of Filipino migrant workers here in the U.S. I talked to Peter Camacho, the education and media officer of Pawis's South Bay chapter to help articulate how the Philippines and the U.S. are forever connected in this system of mass migration. P 
Peter emphasizes that the workers' conditions are intimately connected with the political and economic situations of both the Philippines and the U.S. And it's just the, I mean, it's the harsh reality of like the economic conditions being so difficult in the Philippines that, you know, people are sacrificing their um, lives with their families to be able to provide. Like these are decisions just being made by, um, you know, politicians and stuff that have real impacts on the migrant community, right? On our couple buy-in back home because the decisions that they make that result in the rising costs of things means that our members in Powys, the caregivers, have to work more hours, have to be more exploited in order to send more money to cover for those rising costs. As education director, Peter tries to educate on how current economic and political conditions in the Philippines are rooted in the legacy of U.S. colonialism over the Philippines. But he admits it can be hard. I think a lot of times too, like we've heard from like our caregiver members who, you know, it's like it's hard to think about all those things because like your 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 focus is like how do I make enough money to like send money back home? Because it's not even about like your own livelihood. So it's like how do we also by waging the economic struggle here, um, then also create the conditions where people can see the links right because like ultimately it's all it's all linked right now in this episode we have just scratched the surface of the many links i hope that beginning to break down why these systems have come to be can help lead us to questions about how things can be different for me in my conversations with my aunties it always led back to the hope of reunion and what a relief it will be to finally return home. It will always come back to how we can make a world where families, where the relationship between parent and child is valued over profit. My auntie Gina said it best. I definitely are going back to the Philippines. <laughs> I- and live life comfortably there. I don't want to retire here. The boys can stay here and do whatever they want to do, but I'm going back. There's a song. I'm going back to the Philippines to see my my family again. My, uh-huh. yeah, there's a song for that, and I, I like that song, Going Back to the Philippines. In the next episode, we will be going even further into familial separation and the ways that Filipina migrants carry new ideas of family and familial connection into their overseas communities.